Good evening, everybody. This is Harriet Westmore with the More Wine and Music podcast, the podcast where I discuss different music genre over a glass of wine. Um, we are on episode number 27. We are on season three of the um, music genre. And this music genre for season three is the early 50s, which means we are talking about early rock and roll. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the young and very short-lived of his music career, and that's Richie Valens. So stay tuned as I do my countdown, and um, we'll get started. All right. Well, Barrick, um, if you haven't already hit that subscribe, hit that share button, go to www.morewineandmusic.com and see past videos and audio of uh, the last two seasons of the music genre. Also, if you don't mind, if you want to buy me a coffee, you can go on buymeacoffee.com backslash more wine music. Okay. Um, so let's get started. This is about Richie Valens and he was one of the youngest and short lived. It was, is very sad. Um, this young man just started, he was at the height, um, just the cusp of his, um, career blowing up. And unfortunately it ended, um, rather quickly. But who was he? I know if any of us remember, um, of course, I wasn't alive during the 50s, but I'm sure many um, like my mom and other people out there was and probably remember who um, Richie Valens was. And and um, the movie um, La Bamba with Lou Diamond Phillips portrayed um, was in honor of Richie Valens. But Let's start by trying to get to know him um, before he became quote unquote famous. Richie Valens, who was actually named um, Richard Stephen Valenzuela, was born on May 13th, 1941 in um, Pacomia, um, Pacoma, um, I'm sorry, um, California, it's, which, was, which is a... Uh, suburb of uh LA. So he was born to the father, the father, his father's name was Joseph Steve Valenzuela, who was a, a tree surgeon and a miner and a horse trainer. His mother's name was Concepcion um, or Connie, and she worked in a munitions plant. Um Richie had he had a half brother and two sisters. He was very close with his father. His father was a, um, you know, he he had a bond with his dad. And unfortunately, 
his dad died when Richie was 13 from diabetes related complications. During the time of his childhood, he grew to love music and being in a um, suburb where it was culturally integrated and culturally mixed, he was able to listen to all types of music. And so his music, his love for music stemmed from his admiration to people like Bo Diddley, who I talked about last week, um, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, um, among others. But his main, his main, main person that he really loved and wanted to emulate was Little Richard. So he really, really had a um, admiration for Little Richard. At the age of 16, he um, joined his little first little band. It was called the Silhouettes. Their group played local gigs and um, such as, you know, sock hops, um, church functions and things like that. And Valens was spotted as one of the um, performances at one of the uh, performances. He was spotted by a um, promoter and a manager named um, who was named by um, Robert Keane. And Robert Keane was the head of the Delphi record label. And so he saw a potential in this young man. Um, even though Richie really admired and wanted to emulate um, Little Richard, he was not as wild in his playing as Little Richard was. But nevertheless, um, he kind of patterned after his uh, his songs after or or his stage presence after Little Richard, though he was not as wild. <laughs> as uh, Little Richard was. So Bob Keen saw a potential in this. And, you know, as Richie being the first Latino um, musician at that time, I mean, that was a big deal. It, it was a big deal. So he kind of paved the way for future Latino um, artists to come to pattern after him. So Richie was kind of the pioneer of that. And, but Bob Keen also wanted Richie to um, cross over into mainstream America. Um, so he wanted um, Richie to kind of shorten his name. He couldn't, he, you know, the name um, Richard Valenzuela just, you know, obviously for, and which is, you know, kind of a racist thing, but he wanted um, the opera, you know, Richie to have the opportunity to cross over to um, mainstream America. So he asked, you know, he decided to, that told Richie that you got to shorten your name and don't use the, you know, don't use Valenzuela. How about using for Richard, just use Richie. And um, for Valenzuela, just use Valens. So henceforth, he's been known as Richie Valens. Richie, being a Mexican-American, was very true to his culture, although he did not speak a lick of Spanish. He did not speak Spanish. He was born in um, L.A., so he kind of gravitated towards the, uh, the customs of um, the L.A., customs of California. 
So he did not, you know, he didn't speak a word of Spanish. He um, recorded one of the first early recordings of his uh, music that really made um, a difference was his um, single, um, Come On, Let's Go, which was the first recording with Delphi Records. Um, and, that, and that was a minor hit. He was also... Um, um, he, he also recorded the song, which we all know, um, La Bamba. And he, uh, from what I understood, he had to actually learn how to speak Spanish in order to sing, you know, to record that song. Because again, he did not know how to speak Spanish. He didn't speak Spanish. So when he recorded that uh, La Bamba, you know, that, was a, that wasn't something that was natural to him to speak you know, seeing that he had to learn the, the Spanish um, language in order to learn um, to, you know, play and record La Bamba. Another um, hit was in, of his was um, Donna. And that was, he wrote that song after a um, girlfriend that he, you know, really had, he was really loved this girl named Donna. Um, and actually she was a, um, her name was Donna Ludwig and she was a high school uh, friend of his at school. And, you know, they dated, he really, he really loved um, Donna and Donna cared for him. But unfortunately, because, you know, he had, you know, he was Mexican, you know, her father really did not like the fact that she was dating um Mexican American, you know, man. So they snuck around and, and would see each other as much as they could. But Richie was kind of blowing up in the music business. He um, started playing out of you know town through Bob Keen, was able to get him gigs out of uh, California. So he started to you know get a little bit popular and the song especially La Bamba became popular among the teenagers during that time and uh, that was one of the songs that kind of put him you know kind of put him over the top as far as spreading his talent across the mainstream he made an, an appearance in on American Bandstand in December of 1958, and he also appeared on Alan Freed's Christmas show around the same time. In January 1959, he went on the road with the Winter Dance Party Tour, which was with um, another famous, two other famous um, acts of that time, who was Buddy Holly and the big bopper, J.P. Richardson, um, the Belmonts and Richardson, who was the big bopper. And I'm a t aside from that, or aside from, you know, that tour was kind of a, it was a, I don't know, like a premonition because 
I will have to, in order for me to kind of explain about the, the that tour itself, I, w- I will do a separate episode about the three of them, Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and um, Richie Valens and, and the actual tour um, specifically. But one thing people didn't, who around them they knew, but what people didn't realize that Richie wasn't, he was kind of afraid to fly, but they were for this tour. I mean, they were doing, they were touring the Midwest, which was Minnesota, Iowa, where else? Wisconsin, you know, I mean, and they were doing, I mean, it, it was a really vigorous um, dates of tours from January into February. And it was very, very, um, it was a treacherous tour because they were had this raggedy bus that they were touring on and it you know the bus would break down and we're talking we're talking about dead of winter in the midwest and if anybody who's from the midwest as i am it could be brutal because you have the blizzards you have snow and it it it, it can be very treacherous and that tour was very treacherous on the road so the actual tour, the winter festival tour, party tour was actually, um, it was put together by Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly was basically the main, the main headliner. Richie Valens was a part of that tour as a way of, you know, promoting him because he was basically on the cusp of breaking out into actually fame and stardom. So it was a good idea. I mean, business-wise, it was a good idea to have him link with someone who's already established, such as somebody like Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. But but, but Buddy Holly was the one who actually put this tour together. And so um, he was he was a part of that uh, tour. And uh, again, like I said, it was very, it was a very hard, uh, it was a hard ride. It was a hard um, tour because of um, the amenities were very um, slim. They couldn't even, I mean, they, you know, stuck from city to city to city. I mean, the, the whole book date of January was just booked up. And they had to do shows back to back to back to back from city to city to city throughout the Midwest. And, you know, as anybody who's a entertainer, when you're doing, you know, tours like that, it, it, it is very, very exhausting and very treacherous and very vigorous. And obviously these young, you know, people on the bus, they were, they try to deal with it the best they can. But like I said, I don't, I forgot where in, um, what part of, uh, the Midwest that the bus broke down and it was like, it said it was like, like 40 degrees below zero. They, the bus didn't have any heat. And so, you know, they would try to huddle up and try to be is you know try to get warm and stay warm so obviously when you're 
riding and touring and, you know, trying and then trying to put on shows to entertain people. It, that's, that is a lot. That is a lot. So February 3rd came. February 2nd, let me take that back. Sep let's go back to Fe February 2nd of 1959. The Winter Dance Party toured and played at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa. And then after that, they were set to perform in Moorhead, Minnesota. So they were to leave um, from Iowa and then go to Minnesota. And again, the side the sidebar from that, the way whoever put the tour together itself, they they the logistics was just it was just backwards because they would have to go okay like saying going to Iowa, then you got to backtrack and go to Minnesota. Then you, you know, go back and forth. I mean, it, it was just the, the, whoever routed, did the route and, and the logistics of touring. It, it was just so, it was just, it, it was just wrong. It, the, the tour, I mean, the way the routes that they were taken, it was just, it just didn't make sense because it was like they had to go back, you know, a couple hundred miles and, and or where they were staying was like, you know, hours away from the actual venue to where they were supposed to perform. And so it, it, it was just a bumbling mess. But, you know, again, they did the best they could with what they had. And so that day on February 2nd of 59, they, like I said, they were in um, Clear Lake, Iowa, and they were set to leave and move on to the next city, which was Moorhead, Minnesota. And by this time, Buddy Holly, he just pretty much had it. He pretty much had it with the traveling in that raggedy bus. It was cold. They were cold. They were, you know, the guys, were the band, everybody, you know, it was, everybody was just irritable because, I mean, it was cold and, and just not able to rest well. They've been on the roll for like 21 days straight and not able to change their clothes, so to speak. So they're, so at least, you know, Holly wanted to get to a destination to where it ahead of, and, you know, get there to be able to, to the next city, to be able to do laundry. So he asked, um, he asked the, uh, the owner of the surf ballroom was there, is there a way that they can charter a plane? So some of the, you know, so some of them can go ahead, ahead of the rest. And, you know, he wanted, Buddy wanted to just get there to the next destination first. So he can kind of have some time to, regroup and to wash clothes because like I said they were in suits that they've been in for days and not when they haven't been really able to have clean clothes so can you imagine being on a road touring and performing and have to you know have the same suits on for you know days on end without you know being able to really change or or 
wash wash the suits that you're performing in. So, uh, you know, Buddy Holly, he just pretty much, you know, I he pretty much had it at that point. So he's, you know, asked, is there a way that we can um, charter a plane and some of us can go get, you know, a step ahead, you know, get there to uh, Minneapolis or Minnesota the next day. That way I can find a laundromat, wash some clothes, get some rest, and then I can be able to perform that night. So the manager of, of the surf ballroom, he made some phone calls and was able to find a charter plane. So now it was a question of, well, who gets to ride the plane and who gets to, you know, stay on that raggedy bus and have to travel on the bus? Well, of course, there, I mean, there was no question that Buddy Holly was going to be on the plane because he's the one that suggested it. And he was his, his, this is his tour. This is his show. So he's the headliner. So of course he was going to be on there. So that, that wasn't even the question. Now the big bopper, he has been, he was sick. He had, the, he was fighting the flu for the last, you know, week or so. Um, it, 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 he was fighting the flu. He wasn't feeling well, but he would perform anyway. So he asked another, um, he asked who turned out to be at the bass player that Buddy Holly had, um, hired who was, uh, Waylon Jennings and Waylon Jennings, who is now, uh, you know, one of the uh, legendary country uh, stars. Um, but then he was playing um, early rock and roll and he was playing with Buddy Holly. So Waylon Jennings decided to give up his seat because he knew that the big bopper was ill. He was, you know, he had the flu. So he did it. And, um, you know, Waylon had uh, told um, Buddy about it. He said, well, you know, since the Big Bopper is not feeling well, I'll volunteer. I'll just, you know, ride the bus and I will um, and I will uh, and, I'll, uh, you know, and he can take my seat. And. Um, Holly was like, you know, he kind of teased Waylon Jennings. He, he said, well, okay, I hope, you know, you freeze to death, death on that, um, on that bus. You know, this is, they were bantering back and forth and, um, Waylon Jennings said, well, you know what? I hope your plane crash. And, you know, they were bantering back and forth. Little did they know. Little did he know. And that kind of haunted him, you know, for years after that, for him saying that. But he he was saying it and, and they were joking back and forth. And so that was, you know, that was a foreboding um, thing to say, you know, even though he didn't know that. But, you know, to say that and. But anyway, um, so here's Richie. Richie went up to 
I think it was a guitarist, Holly's guitarist, who was named Tommy Alsop. And he, you know, Richie asked um, Tommy, well, are you going to let me ride the plane? You gonna let, or are you going to let me take your seat? And um, Tommy said, well, you know what? Let's flip forward. So Richie, you know, he took out a coin. He took out a quarter and let's flip for it. So, you know, he told Richie to call, call it out, call it. So Richie called heads and guess what? It was heads. So Richie was the one, he was the last one getting on that plane. So after the show um, that night, the charter plane was ready for um, the three passengers who was um, uh, Buddy Holly, um, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. Now, mind you, Richie was only 17 years old. He was just getting into the, the music game. He just starting to get his hits. He was getting ready. I mean, this was his tour. This was his chance to really um, get people um promoting his new songs the songs that he's been playing and promoting to gain more audience and gain more uh gain more uh fans and people i mean they love the teenagers i mean i tell you the just looking at some of the videos and stuff the teenagers that were very a part of this whole genre of the early 50s they just absolutely went crazy and wild over Richie Valens. So, I mean, that alone, you know, just, you know, made him hype. He was young and, you know, this was an adventure for him. Um, even though he was afraid of, you know, getting on the planes, but he did. He, for some reason, he wanted to get on that plane to know he just couldn't take the, the bus ride anymore. <laughs> he just couldn't take it either. So he flipped for it with um, Tommy Alsup and he won. So he was the last one that boarded on that plane. And so um, the manager of the surf's ballroom, he um, saw the plane, he, he got them on, he wished everybody well. And the pilot on the, of the plane was actually, he was only 21 or 22 years old. He was young. And truth be told, did not obviously did not have enough experience um, flying a plane that happened, you know, that was, uh, you know, there was, a, was snow. It was in the dead of winter. He just didn't have enough um, flying hours. But at that time, you know, nobody really thought about that. But he, I mean, he, he was a young kid himself. He was only 21 years old, but he was the one, he was the pilot for that plane. And he was going to, you know, he was on the charter. I mean, he, they found him and he was willing to take them to the next destination, which was in um, Minnesota. So like I said, um, from what uh, the manager of the surf ballroom, he claimed that the, it was a clear night. It was cold. It was very, very, very cold. But he wished everybody well. 
and um, good luck. So he did. He said he watched, he looked up, he saw the plane. It took off, it, it ascended up in the air. And he kind of thought for a minute, he's like, it didn't take the plane long before it disappeared in the sky. It just like all of a sudden you saw the lights, but then the lights, I mean, you couldn't see the plane anymore. He didn't think more, you know, he didn't think anything about it. He just thought, wow, that was quick. You know, usually as the plane is, you know, when you're going up and you're, you're ascending, you at least see the lights of the plane, but it didn't take long. Next thing you know, the plane was like gone. So, you know, he, that to him, he said that was kind of odd, but you know, he didn't think more about it. And, um, those who stayed back was, um, who was on the road. Um, the, there was a snowstorm all of a sudden at first it wasn't snowing or anything, but as they were driving, I mean, it was like a blizzard, everything like turned white to where, you know, the headlights, I mean, all you saw was just snow coming down. You couldn't even see that far, you know, in front of you. And, um, so it, it, it was, that was kind of unusual. The next day, which was February 3rd, 1959. Um, the next day, they, the people who he, they were supposed to perform in Moorhead had made a phone call back to Iowa or, or made a phone call to the managers or who were, you know, taking care of the ground, the people who were on the ground um, driving in. They said, well, okay, where's um, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens and the Big Bopper? And they were like, what do you mean? Where are they? This They took off on the plane. They, was, they should be there. Well, we have no, um, we haven't heard anything from them. We haven't heard anything from them. And so in the meantime, it came on the radio that there was a plane crash. Um, and back in um, Iowa, there was a plane crash. And, but nobody knew who that was at the time. They said it was a plane crash. Um, uh, we don't know what happened. You know, they're still investigating. Um, and then the uh, manager of the surf ballroom where they played that night before, he received the call that it was Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Big Boppers, the that was their aircraft that play uh that uh that was in the crash and apparently the pilot i don't know he kind of miscalculated his uh bearing he lost his bearings or something and the plane from what you know after investigating the plane wasn't even up long I mean, it wasn't even in the air long before it did a nosedive it, and it landed like a hundred miles an hour nosedive straight down into a cornfield in Iowa. And obviously there were no survivors. So um, 
and it, it was the surf ballroom, the manager had to go identify the bodies. And if you go on online on, on YouTube and you see some documentaries about it, they do show, I mean, they don't show, they just show the, the crash site itself. Um, they found uh, Richie Valens and um, a couple of hundred yards away was Buddy Holly. Now the big bopper, he was thrown clear over across and he was like far away into another into the cornfield farther away from the crash site so he was thrown overthrown you know several hundred yards away from everybody you know from the other two but the other two was you know pretty much near each other and um the the plane you can see it, it the picture of it it's the wings are up and the the um, front end the nose its nose dives straight into the ground and it is, you know, the plane was obviously demolished. So at age 17, you know, Richie Valens was basically on the, the verge or on the cusp. He was right there. He was getting ready to blow up. He was promoting his songs, his new songs. And the audience was just, you know, from what they knew of him and, and they loved him. And, you know, he was just blowing up and his life was cut short at the age of uh, 17. He was only in um, the music business, so to speak, for only eight months. So it wasn't even a year. And his life was taken, you know, just like that. So um, in tribute to the three, um, Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, um, there was a song and everybody who knows it, um, called um, The Day the Music Died by um, Don McLean, um, American Pie. That song was in dedication of them. And I think, and what people have said, that was in 1959, that crash kind of changed the whole dynamic of rock and roll during that period. Um, it, it just changed the whole mindset. Um, from that point, after that, um, a lot of musicians, they just, I mean, it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the good old, uh, everybody, you know, good old happy-go-lucky. Um, everybody just having a good time, going to sock hops and everything. It, it, it just kind of just changed from that point. Now, I think that was pretty much the end of the era of the 50s and the rock and roll era was when that when that plane crash so but we still got some other um musicians during that 50s that we still need to talk about but i just wanted to bring about uh richie valens because richie valens was a he was one of the first pioneers of for the uh latino community to open the door for um, crossing over from uh, as a uh, back then we call a person of color to play um, and it was so young and so talented and was just taken so soon so that's the week episode of uh, Richard Stephen Valenzuela also known as Richie Valens alright so um, next week 
I'm going to do um, Eddie Cochran. That's another person. Um, not too, I mean, people know who that, who he is, but uh, again, he, he's part of the early 50s. So I'm going to portray him next week. We're going to talk about him. So again, um, if you haven't, go to www.morewineandmusic.com. Listen to past history of different genres, the blues and the jazz. Um, also, if you want to buy me a coffee, click on buymeacoffee.com um, backslash more wine and music. And also I want to promote a new upcoming podcast that uh, me and another um, podcaster is, has partnered up with what we're going to do and it's called Let's Find Them. And it is a missing persons, true crime missing persons podcast that will showcase and portray um, our missing uh, children, uh, our children, meaning um, those who are not being profiled um, as much or at all in mainstream media. You know, um, contrary to what people believe, we do care about our, our missing children. And I see, you know, Black young kids are being missing every day. And we want to make sure they get their voice out there to be um, their stories heard and to be, you know, hopefully we can get um, their cases um, and, and find them or at least give closure to the family. So stay tuned in the future for the Let's Find Them podcast. All right. So stay tuned for next week for the episode number 28 for Eddie Cochran and stay safe and talk to you soon. Bye.